0: Hi! Hey! Welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm Kay Albert Little, an evangelical convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one particular idea. It began for me when a pastor asked me the question, what's more important, the Bible or tradition? That led me, an evangelical in my early 20s, onto a deep dive into the history of Christianity into the early church, the early church fathers, the disciples of the apostles, up into the formation of the Bible, how the Bible came to be and what books were in and what books were out, and all the way up into the Reformation and beyond. And it was then, in a study of church history, I encountered the ancient Catholic church. And it was then that I realized what I thought I knew about Catholicism, what I thought I knew that Catholics believed, what I thought I knew was wrong. Mostly wrong, almost all Wrong, And it was based in large part on misinformation and often on simple misunderstandings. Well, this podcast served to fill in that same gap, the gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. Each week, I have a real Catholic conversation with a real Catholic thinker from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this week, I'm joined by Mike Aquilina. Mike is a prolific author, an expert on the early church, and has written a book on Mary. A fantastic book on this exact topic, the history of Mary throughout the church. It's a fantastic book and a great conversation. I've got to tell you guys this, for sure. As an evangelical, I inherited a tradition that, that intentionally, widely, kind of downplayed Mary's role in the history of Christianity, in the history of salvation. After all, Mary was the, the birth mother of Jesus. We know this in the, the Christmas story, of course, but it is always understated. And I understand the intention. I understand the, the reason why, in, in large part, as evangelicals, we were allergic, I'd say, to idolatry. We wanted to avoid putting anything in the place or in the way of Christ, bar none, at all costs. It's a noble intention, but as a result, these really important figures in the history of the church, like Mary, get kind of relegated to a, a, a lower status, kind of ignored sometimes or, or pushed aside because Christ has to come first. And yes, I understand this, but there is collateral. And Mary is one of those figures it looms large, as we see in this interview, in the history of the Christian church, from the beginning, from the very early church, that really, as evangelicals, we ignored. We ignored that important history. And good golly, Mary is important. It's a great interview. I think you'll love it, and I guarantee you will learn something new. Mike is one of my favorite guests to interview, I gotta admit, and I love having a conversation with him whenever I can. This podcast is brought to you by my patrons at patreon.com slash cordial catholic. You guys keep this show going and keep it growing and I have to thank you guys every single week. It's just incredible. and This thing is growing thanks to you guys. And I have a new one-time donor as well to thank. Thank you, Christine, for your generous support of this show. Wow. If you want to support this show on a one-time basis, go to paypal.me slash cordialcatholic. That money goes right back into the show in all kinds of new and exciting ways. Including this. This episode, this this very episode, was also filmed. YouTube.com slash thecordialcatholic to watch this episode. That's only possible through your generous support. You guys, you one-time donors and monthly patrons, thank you youtube.com slash thecordialcatholic to watch this episode too. How exciting. And now, without any further ado, here's my interview with Mike Aquilina on Mary in the early church and the history of Christianity. Please listen and enjoy. Hey, friends, and welcome back to the Cordial Catholic. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for being here week after week. Uh, we have a fantastic conversation this week. I'm joined by Mike Aquilina. Mike is, among other things, a highly sought after speaker, the host of the Way of the Fathers podcast, an award winning songwriter, and the author of almost exactly 1 million books, including The Apostles and Their Times, The Fathers of the Church, and And for our purposes today, History's Queen, exploring Mary's pivotal role from age to age, out from Ave Maria Press. Uh, Mike, it's been a while, but welcome back to the show. Uh, Good to have you, and uh, hello. Well, thanks for having me back, Keith. I've been looking forward to the conversation. I always look forward to having, uh, I say this, uh, history people. On the show, like yourself, uh, Gary Machuda, Steve Weidenkoff, people who deal with history because that's kind of my wheelhouse. I was a history major, and I love history. And so, these are the conversations that, that I mean, I love having all conversations, Mike. I shouldn't I shouldn't disparage other guests on this program, but these are the ones that are kind of after my own heart because it's history that really got me into the church in large measure. And uh, and there's so much work I think to be done in the, in historical apologetics in bringing. The history of the church to a wider audience to our to our non-Catholic Christian brethren to our to our Catholic listeners and and viewers. So thank you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for all the work you do in the million plus books. Uh, I said a million uh, in a minute ago. I think probably by now you've probably written a couple more books since <laughs> I introduced you on the show. So thank you. Well, you're quite welcome. I,
1: I can't afford to stop writing. Uh, I still have kids at home, so uh, so I better keep doing it. <laughs>
0: Oh, very good. Okay, Mike, I want to start with with Mary. Uh, of course, this topic is is all about Mary this episode, and Mary is one of those those chief stumbling blocks for non-Catholic Christians They can't understand why we as Catholics uh, uh, esteem Mary so highly, value her so highly, puts an emphasis on her. And I'm a Catholic convert, so of course, for me as well, this was a huge stumbling block, understanding why Catholics made such a big deal out of Mary. Uh, I've done a lot of reading since then your books uh not least among other books i' have read and and this book of yours, this latest book of yours opens up with and kind of paints for us a picture of Mary in the bible through through typology through prophecy we we don't and I, I'm thinking as an evangelical, I would have said, well, Mary figures a small role in this part here. We, we, I mean, not that small. I mean, being the mother of God is kind of a huge deal. But we could have downplay that and say, well, she figures in these passages here and isn't really seen or heard from after this point, And her role is kind of minimized. But as you so so effectively illustrate and illuminate, there there's a lot about Mary in the Bible. There, more than just what we see in the New Testament, there's, there's typology, there's prophecy. There's a a lot of Mary going on, which is partly why Catholics and, and and the Church, the early Church too, valued her so highly. So, can you? This is a very long-winded question. Unpack for us a little bit of where we see Mary in, in the Bible, even before we see her in the Bible. If that makes mm-hmm. sense.
1: Yeah, I guess I guess you're talking about the way she's prefigured, foreshadowed in the Old Testament, because she is uh, so much of the most important elements of our salvation. Are foreshadowed in the old. Then we all believe this. We all believe that uh, that Jesus Christ is prefigured in 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 the figure of Moses, for example, and the figure of, of of Noah, for example, as a as a redeemer figure. Um, in in many different places, uh, that our Lord is is um is is foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Uh, and this is the way. This is the way the uh, the New Testament Christians saw the Old Testament. It's it's in the epistle, one of the epistles of Peter, that we find uh, the, the the presentation of of Noah as a type of um of our lord and of uh of the uh the ark as a type of the church and uh the waters of the flood as a type of baptism uh in saint paul's uh letters we we find we find similar typology he speaks of christ as um as a fulfillment of of the type of adam the first man and he also speaks of um of of the water for, from the rock, prefiguring baptism, and the manna prefiguring the Eucharist. All of these things are 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 foreshadowings in the Old Testament of what will what will occur at the fulfillment when the Messiah comes. And and um and just as these aspects are 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 uh, prefigured, um so Mary is too, and she's there from the beginning, uh, at the at the time of the fall. When God is pronouncing the curse on the primal couple, Adam and Eve, um, he says uh, to the snake, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He seems to be predicting the arrival of a Messiah, a redeemer who would come in the fullness of time and undo the damage that Adam and Eve had done. And he says it in a strange way when he talks about the seed of the woman, that's a strange thing to say, because in the ancient languages, the seed is associated with the male. Uh, in Latin, for example, it's semen. You know, it's it's, um, it's, it's the male's contribution uh, to the offspring. And yet he's talking here about the woman's seed. That's very strange. But, you know, as you go on in the Old Testament and you hear the prophecies, you know, you come to the most important prophecies of the Messiah and, in, in the, uh, the, the, um, the book of the prophet Isaiah and, uh, and, and they're so thick there and they're so important that, uh, that the early church fathers referred to the book of the prophet Isaiah as the fifth gospel. You know, that's how rich it is in describing the conditions uh, that that would that would bring about the uh, the Messiah. And there we find that that famous prediction, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son um, and and um, and she will call him uh, Emmanuel. You know, Uh, and and so this is this is invoked in the New Testament as a prediction of the uh, the birth of our Lord, the conception of our Lord. So if a virgin is conceiving the son well, then you you can understand how we might speak of the seed of the woman. So it seems to to take us a little bit further than the the uh, the prediction that's in the curse of the snake at the uh, in the third chapter of the book of Genesis. Um, and but 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 our, our Lady is is. Um, It's prefigured in many ways throughout the Old Testament. You know, we we see the miraculous conceptions and births um, in in the stories of Sarah and and Hannah and uh, the mother of Samson. Uh, These are miraculous pregnancies. And, of course, they all foreshadow the great miracle of the pregnancy of Mary, where she becomes pregnant uh, with God himself and by God himself. There's also the figure of the Gebirah, the, uh, the, um, the, the queen mother. In the Davidic monarchy, uh, who was um who is shown in the histories um, to be a powerful intercessor and to have have enjoyed the status of the queen in the court because the king might have several wives but he was only going to have one mother <laughs> so she could she could keep things on an even keel. Um, And there are many other foreshadowings, too, in the Old Testament. Um, And we as Catholics follow the ancient church fathers in seeing several types of Mary's assumption in the Old Testament, because several Old Testament figures, according to Jewish tradition, were assumed bodily into heaven at the end of their days. Uh, This seems seems to have been true of Moses and Elijah and Enoch. Uh, the, we have this from the biblical text, but also from later Jewish traditions. So that's seen uh, in the hymns of the early church and in the writings of, um, of of the Syriac fathers, especially like Ephraim and Simon the Potter. It's seen as a type of foreshadowing of Mary's assumption. So the Old Testament you know, is is thick with an anticipation uh, of the New Testament, and, and Mary's there in the small details.
0: Yeah, and then I guess the, the interesting thing is, and, of course, as an, as an evangelical, we, I would have lost all this through time in the narrative. Would, that would have been lost. But we see this understood right away in the early church, right? I mean, what's remarkable, I think, is, is a movement to go back to the early church and a movement, um, certainly, I would have thought that my, as, a, as an evangelical, my church looked like the early church, I would I would have said okay well where the early church looks looks kind of kind of disparate meeting in the upper rooms different places I would have missed the parts that Ignatius wrote about bishops and the Eucharist and these kinds of things yeah. but I also would have missed the the understanding that the early church had of Mary and it seems to be. Quite quite quickly, this this yeah. developed. It wasn't as if Constantine came, as is sometimes talked about, and, and changed the church and made it more pagan and worship of Mary began. This is kind of the narrative that sometimes Catholics are are are, are put under by non-Catholic Christians. But I, I think you'd push back and say, no, the the early church kind of understood Mary's role quite well, and and quite quickly these ideas were developed. So what can we say about the early church, the very first Christians? To, to have lived after the, the time of Christ's resurrection, what, what did they believe about Mary?
1: Well, I think even before you get to the early Christians, you have to acknowledge Mary's place in the New Testament. She is not a minor figure. Yeah. You know, she is there at the very beginning of Matthew's Gospel when, when uh, we read about her miraculous conception and, and the miracles surrounding her birth. Um, but also, you know, in so many other things, when the Gentiles, the Magi, finally find their way we read that she, they, they found the child with Mary, his mother. And that's an important detail. Uh, everything that's in the New Testament is there for the sake of our salvation. And, uh, and we, have to, we have to look at that line and say, you know, why is, why is this detail? Why did God inspire St. Matthew to include this detail? Well, because that's where we Gentiles are going to find the Messiah, we're going to find him with Mary, his mother, because that's where he wanted to be. That's where he willed to be from that moment. And and that's where he is even today. He's with Mary, his mother. So, so yeah, I, we have to acknowledge that that she's there. When we get to St. Luke's Gospel... We find even more of her there at the beginning, and uh, and she has an enormous speaking part. One of the the largest speaking parts in the New Testament after our Lord, and uh, and she has a lot to say. Uh, she speaks the Magnificat, you know. She she has a dialogue with an angel. She has a dialogue with her kinswoman, um, and we find that she pondered all of these things in her heart. Um, m- many New Testament scholars believe that those are tags to show that these accounts were based on eyewitness testimony, because St. Luke would have been in a position, having visited Ephesus, the traditional uh, place where Mary lived her later years, um, to, to interview uh, the Blessed Mother. And if he was passing through town, you can be sure that a historian like Luke would have looked her up and would have interviewed her and would have taken down her side of the story. And that's why there's so much of that detail in St. Luke's Gospel that we don't get in the other Gospels. And then we get to St. John's Gospel, and that's just remarkable, um, uh, because there we see Our Lady advancing the date of her son's public ministry. You know, he says, uh, you know, it went, they're at, it's at the wedding feast at Cana, and she points out to her son that uh that they've run out of wine there's this embarrassing situation for the couple getting married and uh and he says what is that uh, to you and me uh woman uh my hour has not yet come his hour has not yet come and yet he goes ahead and he does what she wants him to do you know he he advances the moment of his public ministry Because his mother interceded for this this couple who were in a difficult situation. Uh, You know, why is that included there in St. John's Gospel? At this pivotal moment in our Lord's life, at the beginning of his public ministry, to set the tone for the whole public ministry. And when's the next time we see her in John's Gospel? We find her steadfast with him at the foot of the cross when he gives her to the beloved disciple as mother behold your mother. And he he looks at the beloved disciple and he says, behold your son or or, behold your mother. And he looks at his mother and says, uh, behold your son. And he says that of the beloved disciple. (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm getting tongue tied here. But the important thing is that we beloved disciples are supposed to see ourselves in St. John. And we're supposed to see ourselves as being given as children to Jesus' mother. Why is that? He wants us to know that we are his brothers. We are now brothers of Jesus Christ because of his great act of redemption. We're in his family. We will come to share his table and his home in heaven. So we get to say our father when we pray to his father, and we get to share his mother too. We get to say she is our mother. So uh, there's a lot of rich uh material there in St John's gospel it continues in the acts of the apostles because we find Mary there in the midst of the church praying with the apostles for the outpouring of the holy spirit and and uh, scripture scholars should point out to us that this seems to echo the beginning of St Luke's gospel because St Luke wrote both books there's this um this waiting for the overshadowing of the holy spirit at the beginning of the book just as 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 uh, we we saw in the gospel so this is going on, and then in, and later on, uh, we get to the writings of St. Paul, and St. Paul finds it impossible to tell the story of the gospel unless he includes Mary in it. We get to his great summary of the gospel in the fourth chapter of his letter to the Galatians, and um, and he's telling the story of Jesus. He says that in the fullness of time, he was he was born under the law, born of a woman. So she has to be in there because she's the great guarantor. Of his divine sonship, uh, he's he's the great she's the great guarantor also um, of his full humanity. So um, so so he brings up these uh, this detail in his letter to the Galatians. We get to the end of the New Testament and we find her once again the mother of the Messiah the mother of the 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 male child who will rule all the nations there he is uh, in chapter twelve of the apocalypse and uh and she's there uh in in labor pains as it were uh, um and uh and she's she's shown in heaven as the uh the the Ark of the new covenant bearing the the covenant into the world and um and she's, she's crowned like a queen. So Mary's there all through the New Testament so that by the time we get to the early church, we can see that the early church had a lot to work with. So I think it's important to establish the Old Testament typology and then the New Testament proclamation in order to understand what the fathers of the church were doing in the late 1st century and all through the 2nd century and 3rd century
0: and 4th century. Well, I'm glad you slowed me down there because I was ready to skip the whole. Ah, <laughs> oh, it's been a long day, Mike. It has. <laughs> it's been a long, long day of days. Yeah. So you're absolutely right in saying that, right? So the the old the Old Testament kind of sets the scene, the the New Testament, I mean, sets the table, and then and then I suppose that the church fathers those those Christians who are the interpreters of what's what's happened. In the Bible, living that out now in the very first centuries, they take that and run with that. And what a rich, what a rich tradition they have to, to enter into, right? So what do we what do we find in them almost right away? Th- their interpretations of these situations. I mean, you talk about things like the Ark of the New Covenant and and Mary's role, as we see her in, in heaven in Revelation, and as we understand her what she's told John on, on the cross and her role in the wedding, the wedding supper, all these things we see. And, and I think here's where, where I miss the boat as, a, as an evangelical Christian, and I think many of my evangelical listeners to this program may be in that same situation too, is we don't have the wealth of the church fathers in our tradition to interpret all those events for us, which then the church takes and continues, right? I mean, we, we look at something like the, like the wedding supper and say, well, Jesus spoke poorly to Mary, because he calls her woman, we don't have the rich typology of that that I think the early church fathers took and had kind of very early on and and that got the ball rolling, a ball that we dropped at the reformation we can we can get to that. I don't want to skip ahead, but some of those things that we see that are that are very plain for us in the New Testament, they're plain for us, I think because the early church fathers then immediately said, "Look, here's what we were taught." here's what we believe and pass that on am I, am I right with saying that? No, I,
1: I think so. I, you know,
0: Protestants often say that, well, we go
1: by scripture. Well, you Catholics go by scripture and tradition. I would respond that we're all going by scripture and tradition. We all have our interpretive traditions, um, uh, reading the Bible the way John Calvin did or the way Martin Luther did is one interpretive tradition, um, but it, it's, it doesn't seem to follow the way the church fathers did, and I'd argue that the church fathers may be a more reliable interpretive tradition because they were living closer to the time of our lord they were living closer to the time of the apostles and they were very careful to preserve the interpretations and the teachings of their immediate ancestors going back a couple centuries now i need to give credit where credit is due Um, this is a great series that's been coming out it's the ancient christian commentary on the scripture and it's it, it goes through each and every book of the bible verse by verse, and it gives you what the church fathers said uh, about each and every one of those verses. And it gives you a lot of quotations. I, I, I have to say it's published by um, a traditionally evangelical publishing house, InterVarsity Press. It is, it, is one of the, um, it is one of the reference works that I use every, every day, and it's multiple volumes. It goes, it, goes, uh, it goes through many volumes of the New Testament uh, and the Old Testament so uh you know i have to give credit where credit is due but um but our bible study group includes the great fathers of the church the doctors of the church the saints of the church not only from the 1500s onward but in every century from every century we consult them and we and we try to say um you know how did they view scripture? How did they interpret this particular passage? And we try to hold ourselves to that tradition, because otherwise you have chaos. Um, you you have you have no consistency from time to time and from place to place. There's um uh, the the scripture is is just whatever the local people want it to be in that particular year. So so I I, I think we have a great advantage in in holding ourselves accountable. To the way the scriptures have always been read, uh, Catholics see themselves as as bound to the scriptures, and we we uh, we consult the people we consider most reliable as uh, as scriptural interpreters, and those include the fathers whose works have have certainly uh, withstood the test of time. They've been around for for twenty centuries
0: now, and uh, and uh, and and they're they're proven reliable. And the very early fathers, the very early Christians who who followed the apostles, they they held very particular views or understandings of Mary quite quite early on, right? As you kind of illuminate in your book. So what are some of these things that that the very early church already understood and began to to practice? These things that that unfortunately are sometimes characterized as very Catholic ideas, well they're Catholic, but they also have roots in the early church, right?
1: <laughs> yes, yeah, so, you know, from very early we have some of these these uh, apocryphal uh, documents appearing. So around seventy A.D., there appears this um, this text in Egypt called the Ascension of Isaiah, and and it describes uh, the virginal conception, virgin birth uh, of Mary, and it's uh, it's very keen to. Um, to defend the virginity of Our Lady. Um, We find the same thing, the same themes appearing in uh, just a few years later in around 120 AD uh, in the infancy gospel of James. Uh, The original title of that book was, was called the gospel of Mary. And, um, and it tries to tell the story of the life of the blessed Virgin uh, before she conceived our Lord. And then uh, to the end of her, her days. Um, But the, uh, the text there also is very uh, careful to defend her virginity. Why is this? Well, because it was being attacked, and we know that from very early on. We have pagan documents and Jewish documents, both – uh both kind of questioning uh, or, or even attacking uh, the doctrine of Mary's virginity this tradition uh, the, of Mary's virginal conception of our Lord um, so the church was very careful to um, to argue forcefully for this for, to put forth an apologetic from the very beginning um, uh, and you'll find it again in the early fathers like Justin Irenaeus Tertullian uh, by the, that they take you through the uh, through the 100s. Justin and Irenaeus and Tertullian all speak of the Blessed Virgin Mary as the new Eve, right? This uh this new mother of all creation. And Irenaeus especially talks about her as undoing the knot of Eve's disobedience uh, by the strength of her own obedience. Okay? So um she reverses the curse by uh by by her obedience, which is contrary to Eve's. Uh, obedience or disobedience. So, so all of these figures in the one hundreds are are um, are putting forth positive doctrine about the Blessed Virgin Mary, and uh, and and we're we're the recipients of that doctrine. We're, these are the things that we still believe today. It becomes more and more developed in the centuries that follow. We begin to see Marian art appear in the archaeological record, in the catacombs in Rome, and in the the. Um, the, the cemeteries and the Fayum in Egypt. Um, and then when you get to the, to the fourth century, to the three hundreds, you find kind of an explosion of references to Mary. Uh, great, um, uh, great, passages about her and her her position in salvation history. You begin to find more apocryphal documents that purport to tell you about how she ended her days. Uh, And then you find in the Eastern Church especially these wonderful hymns uh, to the Blessed Virgin and a rich, rich theology of her place in the story of salvation. You find those in Ephraim, but you also find them in prose, very poetic prose, in Afrahat. Uh, you find them in hymns by Simon the Potter. All of these beautiful sources. And then you get to the fifth century. And this is where um, you'll, you'll often hear uh, people say, uh, especially non-Catholics, you'll hear them say, well, You know, Catholic Marian doctrine really begins in the fifth century. And 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 that's just not true. What happens is in the fifth century is the Council of Ephesus, where the title of Mary was called into question, this title that was most common in the early church, Mother of God. But that, that title doesn't appear at the time of Ephesus. It's used again and again in the fourth century by Gregory of Nazianzus, by Gregory of Nyssa. It's, it's in, it's, it's used in prayers that were included in liturgical texts going back to the beginning of the third century. The great Subtuum Presidium prayer, which we, we have in every possible language from the ancient church, um, was, was, was one that called upon Mary as the Holy Mother of God. So there is this tradition of addressing her that way and of talking about her that way. Uh, The Emperor Constantine did address her that way, and the pagan emperor, the apostate Christian, Julian, uh, mocked Christians for referring to her as Mother of God because he said the title was illogical. Well, you get to the 5th century, and you have this Christian heretic named Nestorius, and he is echoing Julian in saying that the title is illogical, because a mother has to precede her child in time, and no mother can precede God, right? So we shouldn't call her mother of God. Well, Cyril of Alexandria speaks for the earlier Christian tradition, and actually he marshals all of these sources to demonstrate that this is an early Christian tradition. Cyril says that <laughs> that um that no, our Lord, that Mary did not precede the Word of God in time, but she certainly mothered him. she certainly mothered him. Nestorius had said that um, that Mary gave birth not to Jesus divine nature, but to his human nature. And Cyril responded that a woman does not give birth to a nature a woman gives birth to a person and this person was both human and divine so ephesus doesn't doesn't begin the early church's mariology it crowns the early church's uh Mariology by recapitulating it and articulating it in, in, in clearer ways. So 431, we do have this, this council of the church, a very important, the third ecumenical council, uh, and it's, it's called in order to address this concern. They were addressing the concern, though, um, not so much as a a problem of Mariology as it was a problem of Christology. Okay. Because they said, if you say, that Mary was mother of one of Jesus' natures, but not the other. You're really splitting Jesus in half. You're saying that he's not fully divine and fully human. You're saying that there's this fully divine person who was somehow united to a, a fully, fully human person. And, and, and Cyril. And uh, the great fathers of the church refused to accept that, and indeed they they denounced it as heresy. Uh, Nestorius was excommunicated and exiled from the empire.
0: (laughs) And I think it's so remarkable, as you point out, that it was in response—I mean, it was almost— in order to unpack the trinity you have to unpack how we understand mary's role in 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 the salvation history right which i think is so remarkable and as we we say as catholics and i learn i've learned this as becoming a catholic is mary always points back to christ and here's maybe one of the uh, one of the very early examples in how the church began to understand her role in a, in a serious way again pointing back to christ right
1: yes 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 so uh, it, it, you know you when when the wise men went looking for the messiah they found him with mary his mother when we go looking for the messiah that's where we uh, the, you know we always find him there in in matthew's gospel in luke's gospel in saint john's gospel in the book of revelation in saint paul's letter to the galatians we find the divine child with mary his mother and so uh you know what what's she going to tell us when we when we when we go looking and we we find her she's going to say do whatever he tells you So it's always, always um, uh, a Christocentric devotion. You know, Marian devotion is always a Christocentric devotion. And that's why in all of the great uh, icons of the Eastern tradition, you'll find Mary holding the divine child. Okay, so that he's center, but she's the one who's supporting him. She's the one who's making salvation possible in this way because of her correspondence to this immense grace from God.
0: I guess the, ne- the next point that I want to hit on here as we kind of do this little uh, hop, skip, and jump through time looking at the, at how Mary was understood is, is Mary in, in European Catholicism. That's a huge, big topic. I'm thinking uh, kind of in, into the Middle Ages maybe and how that kind of developed because w- what we see so often it, looking at, at the history of how Mary is understood is we will often... As evangelicals, I would have done this: pointed back to the medieval church and and look at all these things they were doing wrong, and look at how all these churches named for Mary, all these statues of Mary, all this high Marian art. Like it, it, it you could argue as a non-Catholic Christian that they went overboard in the Middle Ages in how they perceived and understood Mary. Um, you make a fantastic case in the book of why some of these things arose and, and the, the power of these things and the importance of these things. So I don't know if you can give us a little sketch of some of the, the, the encounters we find of Mary in, in the European Catholic Church as it developed kind of in the Middle Ages and, and, and around that time period and why that makes sense and, and, and how that kind of laid for us as Catholics today a, a legacy, if you will. You know, when you read the early church fathers,
1: you see that they were always um, they always had felt this urgency to prove the divinity of Jesus and prove the humanity of Jesus. Because you know, in all of those years, there were there were heretics who wanted to take this side of it away or that side of it away to say Jesus just seemed to be human, or to say that he wasn't quite divine. He was kind of godish. <laughs> he was godlike in a lot of ways but he wasn't really god um so you 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 found these these heresies ar- arising uh that that denied the trinity denied the humanity of our lord and devi- denied the, the divinity of our lord and it, and and i believe that when you take mary out of the picture you begin to lose that balance because as i said earlier she's the great guarantor she, she shows you his, his, hum, his full humanity, and she proves it because he bore her DNA, all right? This was her seed uh, that, that, uh, that saved us. And, um, and so she, she, she stands for his full humanity. And yet the story that she told to St. Luke of her conception is the witness to our Lord's full divinity – because she bore the child by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the power of the divinity. And implicit in the account, even of that conception, is the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, once you take Mary out of the picture, or once you try to demote her, you start to lose one or the other. You lose his humanity, you lose his divinity, these things become murky to you, and you lose the blessed Trinity. And that's why I think that In the wake of the Reformation, very early on, you began to have these sects arising that, that did not accept, um, the doctrine of the Trinity, for example. You know, they put it aside because they said it wasn't biblical, even though it's implicit in so many biblical texts and explicit in a couple of them as well. So, uh, you know, this happens. And now we're seeing it happen again in, in the, uh, in the Protestant sects that most reject uh, that most vociferously reject the place of the Virgin Mary uh, as as we find it in the Catholic Church and in the Orthodox Church. In those churches, you find an increasing uneasiness with the Blessed Trinity. I know in my own town, uh, there's a there's a mega church, and uh, and they they've always played uh, recordings of the of the the sermons of their founding pastor on the sound system as as kind of background uh, to their gathering every week on Sunday. Um, well, they stopped playing his sermons that talk about the Trinity because they found that that was divisive in their community. Some people were following after a lot of the, the trends in evangelicalism and, um, and uh, Pentecostalism that are, that are non-Trinitarian or even anti-Trinitarian because you don't find the word Trinity in the Bible, or you don't find um, a, a full reflection on the Trinity in the Bible. Um, so this is this is kind of strange. I think that Mary is the great protector of so many of the core doctrines of Christianity. And once you take her out of the picture, uh, and you can see this at various stages of Christian history, once you take her out of the picture, the other doctrines don't hang together as well.
0: Yeah, you have, a, you have one chapter of the book called Mary is the Dynamo. I think, right, right. Yes. what and again, it's the idea of, of Mary pointing to Christ in so many cases, even things like the Rosary, which I guess you know obviously that's the the, the trope for us Catholics is the way that we all pray. We only Catholics only pray the Rosary. Of course this isn't true, but the Rosary is a fantastic devotion. Was that one of the things that that began to be more popular kind of um, in, in European Catholicism? That then, I suppose, uh, we're going to talk about the Reformation in a second here. Maybe it would have been pushed back against at the Reformation as as the reformers maybe would have seen a less important place uh, for Mary. What was the rosary like in 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 terms of of European Catholicism? You know, of course, it's a legacy that we we inherit here as North American uh, uh, Catholics.
1: Yes, yes. Well, I, I mean. According to legend, it was it was started, the, the rosary was started uh, by St. Dominic in the 13th century. Uh, that's probably not true. It probably predated St. Dominic, but he was the great promoter of the rosary because he wanted to get people back into the biblical stories. He wanted to remind them of the flesh of Jesus Christ. At the time, there was one of these flesh-denying heresies rising up in France, and he wanted to use the rosary as his weapon for overcoming that heresy. How do you do that? By getting people back into the stories from the New Testament, the flesh and blood, getting them to meditate upon these with Mary. So you're supposed to be standing there with the Blessed Virgin, thinking about these stories, entering the scenes as if you're there with her. Um, And it was very effective. Uh, There's a great history of the early early years of the Rosary. It's by a non-Catholic named Anne Winston Allen it it's called Stories of the Rose it came out i guess about 25 years ago from Penn State University Press it's still in print it's a great book because what um what Anne Winston Allen shows in this history is that the rosary spread like wildfire through Europe in the that century before the reformation and that it was an intensely christocentric prayer Now, you have to keep in mind that um, this is happening before there's a printing press. Most people could not read. Most people in Europe could not read. And those who could read could not afford books. Because books were very expensive to buy, they had to be made um, in in one or another laborious way. Those that were mass produced were still extremely expensive; only the very wealthy could afford them. But most other books had to be copied out by hand, and uh, and that was the technology that was uh, that was most used for devotional books. So people just couldn't afford them. If they could afford them, you know, uh, you know, they'd have very few. Uh, But but the rosary was the way that ordinary christians got to think about the biblical scenes meditate upon them uh, in flesh and blood and who embodies that flesh and blood of our lord jesus uh better than the blessed virgin mary as as st augustine said back in the 4th century and the 5th century that the flesh of christ is the flesh of mary you know he was bearing her dna so um so so yes this is uh this is um this is something that happened um another thing that that ann winston allen uh, points out is that uh is that as the rosary was prayed it was it was extremely christocentric uh she shows you that from the devotional books that were the first out of the gate uh when when um when the printing press arose at the invention of the printing press many of the early books that were printed were de- rosary devotionals they were these these manuals that people could use um, along with uh, the the praying of the beads, so um so so she tracks this and she shows them to be centered on Christ, which is which is what a Catholic would expect, but but maybe some Protestants would be surprised by.
0: Yeah, I think the one surprise with with as you begin praying the Rosary, usually as a Catholic or somebody looking into how the Rosary is done, is how Christocentric it is, and it's remarkable. Again, from its origin, I mean, it's again it's it's Mary pointing. Back to Christ, yes, uh, in, in flesh and blood. Right, that, that makes perfect sense. And, and what a what a cool history! If I can yes. be so blunt as to say that, it's such a fascinating, fascinating story that it originated like that. Yes. So at the Reformation, then we we come to what is the heritage for for our Protestant listeners, our non Catholic uh, Christian listeners, and here is where so many of these Marian ideas began to be shed in all these different... Now, there's, of course, no Protestant theology. There's Protestant theologies and different denominations and sects and understanding. Even at the beginning, there's 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 different factions and different ways of understanding uh, Christian the, the Bible and Christian theology from different Protestant reformers. Uh, some of these reformers, as you explain in the book, held quite a high view of Mary, and others, I'm thinking of Calvin, kind of fall back into heresy, that the, the Church would have really put to bed ages before and of course then the legacy that the reformation leaves then uh walks back that place of Mary quite a bit and and repeats these these old heresies like denying her as mother of god which as you mentioned before was settled in in the 400s right this was something that the whole christian church agreed was was fine and 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 had such a rich purpose behind it to point back to christ but again while this history is shed at the reformation yet some reformers maintain quite a high view of mary so can you paint a bit of a picture for us of of the reformation and and how mary was understood by some of these early reformers and the, and the early the early protestants uh,
1: there there was a wonderful uh, history of the reformation came out a few years ago from Yale University Press it was called reformations uh, by Carlos Ire, And he likes to point out that there was not one Reformation. There were many Reformations going on, and some of them were Catholic. Um, but the Protestant Reformation was, was kind of a chaotic event. And there was, there was nothing that you could call unity to it. The only thing that all the Reformers agreed upon was that um, they, they had no use for having a Pope. <laughs> that, was the, that was the only thing they agreed on was their opposition uh, to the papacy. So you do find kind of a doctrinal chaos in regard to Mary. Uh, Luther had a high Mariology, and he accepted the Marian doctrines of the early church. He 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 said he objected only to uh, what he perceived as an exaggerated devotion that that was current in his time. Uh, again, he had no no objection really to uh, the Hail Mary as it was prayed. Uh, um, that that was not a problem for him, and and he held on uh, to the dogmas of the church regarding regarding Mary. Uh, Calvin re- rejects the title Mother of God, which which as you pointed out had a rich pedigree in the early church and was uh, was affirmed by so many of the early church fathers. It seems to me that in order to accept uh, the doctrines of the reformers, you almost have to see the protestant reformation as an event that's almost on a, on a par with the incarnation of our lord because it's the only way you can make sense of it why does why does the church of the reformers not conform more closely to the church that we know from the late 1st century or the early 2nd century or the late 2nd century or the early 3rd century and so on you know why does the, the Church of the Reformers looked like nothing that we can find anywhere on earth in the first millennium. Uh, it, you have to believe that the Reformation itself was an event that was a, a religious revolution on a par with the incarnation of our Lord. Um, and, and again, that's the only way I think you can make sense of the undoing of the doctrine and the doctrinal development that had gone on for fifteen hundred years up to that point. Uh, it does kind of plunge everything into chaos. Uh, some of the Marian doctrine will be recovered in a sense in uh, in, in later Anglicanism and in um, in, in Methodism, uh, but uh, but not in any coherent way and uh and not in any consistent way.
0: Well yeah, I mean like I said it is so fascinating. I, like I I I haven't heard before and I've heard a lot of things, but of course you teach me new things whenever I speak to you, Mike, or read your books. I hadn't I hadn't heard before this idea of yeah, the reformation must have been this this event, like the incarnation because it did it did break so strongly from the rest of of Christian history. That's a remarkable observation and I think very very salient one. To make, and yeah, like we we inherit, and I, I keep going back to this, my my evangelical past, but it's what I have to refer to. And I know a lot of listeners to this show are converts or or thinking of converting or looking into the Catholic faith. We lose all this rich, this rich history, and we're back to just looking at the Bible, opening it up and seeing where Mary appears there. And even there, our understanding is so is so paltry because we don't have the typology that the early church fathers taught us to understand her role as the new Eve or as the new Ark. All these different things. So we're looking at the Bible, and we're seeing Mary at the wedding supper and and see and seeing her being being spoken to oddly, and we're seeing her at the foot of the cross, um, being you know John being given to her and going, okay, well she she. Now she has one son. It's John. They'll go over here and they'll live, and then they'll both die, and that'll be the end. We don't have this rich understanding that that pre-Reformation, everybody in the church would have kind of understood, depending on our denomination as Protestants, we would have had bits and pieces of this, but as Catholics here, we we take that that whole thing, and it's not as if later on Catholics invent. The Assumption out of out of whole cloth, or or perpetual virginity of Mary out of out of whole cloth, right? As you said, these things are laid in the foundations of the history of Christianity, yes. and I'm and I'm sorry we that that we as Protestants lost that, but Catholics never did. They maintained yeah. that, right? No, yeah.
1: I, I mean often when we join a Bible study group in 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 our in the 21st century, you know, we're sitting around with a lot of people who look and talk and think like us we're all speaking english together we're all we we, we we we've all had the same kind of education and um and you know we're we're not going to be we're not going to be challenged we're going to be um we're going to find the things that an american would find we're we're, we're going at these things with a, an american's perspective in a 21st century american's perspective but if you're catholic you can't do that you have to hold yourself accountable to the people who have gone before you uh, in your rich tradition. You have to hold yourself accountable to the readings from from uh, Roman Africa in the in the third century. You have to hold yourself accountable to the reading of Cyprian and Tertullian, even earlier than that. And then, um, and then uh, the the readings from Ethiopia in the the sixth century. Um, you, you're, you're going to be challenged by people who are not from your tradition, who don't look like you or talk like you or live in times like yours. You're going to hold yourself accountable to the observations and the interpretations of Afrahat, who was living in Iran in the fourth century, and Ephraim, who was living in Syria in the fourth century, and speaking a language far different from yours. Um, so so I, I think it's, it's so rich, because you're in this Bible study group, so to speak, with so many brilliant minds. And, and you know what, today, they're, as, they're even more alive than the people who would be sitting in a room with you in the basement of your church. <laughs> because now they're there in the communion of saints. You know, you read the book of Revelation and you find those souls of the martyrs, the souls of the martyrs who are under the altar in heaven, and they're crying out, they're interceding for the events going on on earth. And they're saying, how long, Lord? How long? Well, that's the life they're living now, interceding for those of us on earth. They're still very much active in our lives. You read the letter to the Hebrews, you get into those later chapters where you where you read about the great cloud of witnesses that surrounds us as we go forward. All of these figures from the Old Testament, all of these figures from the early church, the martyrs of the early church, they're all around us now as a cloud of witnesses. Well, if we're not paying attention to what they said in the first century, second century, third century, fourth century, Well, then we're not allowing them to witness to us. We're not doing what the biblical books are guiding us to do in Hebrews and Revelation. This is what we're called to do as Christians, to live that life of the church as it's, as it's envisioned for us in Hebrews and Revelation, these visionary books, trying to show us how to live as Christians down through the ages. This is how we want to live today with with the saints very much active around us and witnessing to us from their works that they produced in their lives, their reflections on Scripture, we shouldn't confine ourselves to just 21st century America and how how we um, we look at Scripture today. Those are important, and we might be producing some very important insights today, but it's not the whole picture by any stretch
0: <laughs> I love that amen and I think it's I think it's Chesterton right talks about the democracy of the dead and how, yeah. how of course a, yeah. famous, a famous convert himself talks about Catholic the Catholic, the Catholic Church is the one place where you have a democracy of the dead because they we value the history of those who come before us and their theology and their understandings and and as you say. I get into an argument. I've, I've mentioned before in this podcast. I have I have a good, very close friend, evangelical Christian. We we were we were evangelicals together for a long, long time. I became Catholic, left him in the dust. He's still evangelical. We argue once every couple of years. A really good knockout, drag him up argument. Uh, once every couple of years, out of our system. Wait two more years and then go at it again. And it's 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 good fun. Very, you know, we're both very devout in our in our in our faith in our faiths. So they're, they're great conversations, great arguments, but we got into one recently where he had said, you know, how, how do you let this this church interpret the Bible for you? How do you know this one church is the right church? You know, what about this church over here? What about the early Ethiopian church and the early church over here and the early, all these churches and, and what we know now from different scholars now? and And... You know, I had to back up a little bit and try, to, try and understand where he was coming from because, of course, we have different paradigms. But I kind of thought, like what you're saying, wait wait a minute, but my church is the church that takes into account all this ancient history. And you with your Bible, I mean, you can read from these other traditions or you, and you can see what these traditions say through your lens of, of, of you and your Bible, but it comes back to you and your Bible, where my, yes. or my tradition that I have found— Dear, dear evangelical friend is longer and richer and weightier and we weigh the history of those who come before us and don't try and reinvent that because Christ told us his church wouldn't be overcome, right? So it's a very different approach and a hard paradigm to get your, your mind around if you are not within it or understand that. But I mean, I think you put it so well and so passionately. We we value the history of those who come before us in a, in a room in a Bible study, it's not just me and you, Mike, it's me and you and thousands of other people, literally yeah. literally behind you in your library, but also out there in, in, in the history of the, of the church's theology, right? How we understand things as Catholics.
1: Yeah, John Henry Newman said that as a Protestant, he began to read the church fathers, and he began to see them as authorities, but then he realized that his fellow Protestants could cherry-pick quotations from the fathers just as easily as they cherry picked quotations from scripture so that you could find you could you could uh you could say that this father doesn't agree with this one or it seems to contradict this one he said so it was the the fathers of the church who led him to the church of the fathers because he recognized that christ must have established an authority on earth to judge certain interpretations to be out of bounds to look at the various competing interpretations and say these do not conform to the tradition as we've received it, and to and to show us that those are out of the bounds. Now, the Catholic Church very rarely does that. We accommodate an awful lot of speculation on on uh, on on a lot of different issues, uh, but there are certain times when um when the controversy provokes a crisis in the church and begins to. Uh, to divide the church and it's then that the church is duty bound to come forward and make a ruling, make a judgment and to exercise the authority that it's always exercised from the early years of the church. You know, we find uh, the popes of the early church making such rulings very early on and we find the councils functioning in this way within the church from very early on.
0: I want to talk, I have one more question for you uh, in regards to, to Mary and this is always for me as an evangelical, was one of those things that I, I had an exorcist on my program, Father uh, Father Vincent Lampert, uh, talking about exorcism, and I told him the same kind of thing because for me, Mary's role in exorcisms was always this question mark for me as a as an evangelical because how if Mary was as we saw her as evangelicals, you know, the mother of Jesus and kind of a, a young um, Israeli woman, like young Jewish woman, uh, and who has a, who has a role to play? And that's kind of it. We didn't really, that's what we saw in the Bible, and that was all we had for her, really. How how did she have any role in exorcisms, if, if that's all she was? That was always a puzzler for me. Yet we hear these, these stories of exorcisms where Mary is invoked and, and things happen, right? Demons are scared of her. The same thing for me, looking at historical Marian miracles uh, at, at Lourdes and places like that. We I I'd read these stories as an evangelical, as somebody looking into the Catholic Church, and I'd go, well, she must be more than I understand her to be. If she can, she can do these miracles. If her appearances have miracles associated with them, she must have some kind of uh, some kind of role be, in salvation history beyond how what I understood her to have as an evangelical. So. For me, like exorcism and Mary's role, these Marian miracles are this big question mark that I that I couldn't wrap my head around. So I wonder if you can just maybe unpack one or two of these historical uh, Mary's place in history v- via these miraculous events and and kind of what those how those orient. Her for us us Catholics in history.
1: I, I think all of those miracles down through history are dwarfed by that one I mentioned earlier in, uh, in, in, in the second chapter of St. John's Gospel where she actually <laughs> advances the moment of Jesus' ministry. You know, he says, my hour has not yet come and yet he advances the hour because of her intercession. To me, that is a miracle willed by God Uh, And we're allowed to witness it. You know, John was inspired to put that there at the beginning of our our Lord's ministry, um, as it's told in his gospel. So that, to me, is the great miracle. But of of course, there are many down through history. um, And and I find the presence of Mary in her various various ways in every age to be a great miracle. It's not always something that's obviously supernatural. But what we find is Mary, as you mentioned earlier, becoming a dynamo for a culture. There she is inspiring the great cathedrals of Europe, those, those awesome buildings with their phenomenal stained glass kind of driving new technologies in architecture and in art and in glass making in chemistry uh, our lady is inspiring all of these scientists and uh, and 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 builders and 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 uh, and and artisans to do their greatest work and then comes the time of the plague that wiped out so much of the population of europe bubonic plague you know uh, and um And at that time, we find Mary emerging in a new way, not 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 a completely new way, because it's a biblical way. It's it's a it's a scene from the New Testament. But we find her showing up everywhere on the scene in the image of the Pieta of the grieving mother holding the corpse of her son and weeping, mourning. So suddenly Mary is there among her people as she is in the Acts of the Apostles at the beginning. There she is among her people, among the church. And she's saying, look, I'm grieving with you. I'll show you how to get through this. I'll give you hope that there is something after this moment of immense pain. But right now, I'm going to be with you in this moment of immense pain as Europe was undergoing this this terrible disease, this pandemic. Like nothing it had it had experienced before, um, so there she is. She appears then, but there are the supernatural events as well. You know, there's there's um, there's the the fact of uh, of of the uh, the the forces uh from from the uh the holy league overcoming uh the the forces uh the islamic forces that were coming to invade europe and the victory at the battle of lepanto that turned back islam as it was tra- as it was trying to enter europe once again um this was a miracle everyone everyone acknowledges that you know you had a a force that was outnumbered and and this this ragtag force representing a disunited europe um uh, and 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 yes, it won by the power of of uh, of prayer. Really, the the, the Holy Father uh, Pope Pius V was begging people everywhere to pray the Rosary for a successful outcome uh, of this battle. Uh, the the, uh, the 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 lead ship in the European forces had the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe at the at the front of the ship, and uh, and and of course, they all attributed the victory. Um, to, to, um, to, to the Blessed Mother. And of course, the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe itself was miraculous, whether you look at the, the Spanish image that goes by that name, which, which may date back to the first century, or you look at the, uh, the, the image that was, that was miraculously imposed on the, um, on the tilma. Of Juan Diego in 1531, uh, and, and it still survives today. Even though that kind of fabric does not endure, it's still there today. No one can really explain how this image was imprinted on on the tilma, because there are no brush strokes involved in it, uh, and there are many unusual things about the image itself. No one can explain it really, and yet there it is, 400, 500 years later. We're almost at the 500th anniversary. It's still there, and you can go and see it in Mexico. Um, uh, so that is something miraculous. So many things uh, that that I enumerated there, including Marian apparitions. But I didn't want to confine it to Marian apparitions. I wanted um, I wanted to make sure that people didn't think I was, I, I, I you know, just focused on these events, which which may be believed or not. What I'm talking about is the historical record, and I'm talking about a mother who tries to insinuate herself into the lives of her children in every day, in every age, and in every place. She tries to find a way to remain in their lives. And that's what we all do as parents, as our children grow up, when they become adolescents and they become a little strange to us, a little alien. Uh, we try to find new ways to be in their lives. And when then when they become adults, we do it once again. Um, to, to stay in their lives and to stay relevant to them. Mary is always doing this within the church. She's always doing this within our lives. She's trying to find a way uh, to, to remain with us so that we'll find Jesus with her as the as the Magi did in, in St. Matthew's Gospel.
0: <laughs> That's a great cherry on top of this conversation, Mike. <laughs> Thank you for this book. Thank you for this conversation. Thank you for your time. Where do you want to point people towards to find more of your stuff. You have a fantastic podcast for podcast listeners. uh, The Way of the Fathers, fantastic. uh, uh, I want to say charitable work you've begun for us because... Everybody knew you had all this knowledge to share with the fathers. And we we're, think- were thinking, come on, Mike, do a podcast, share more with us. And you did. You did in, in, your, in your wisdom and grace. You, you began a podcast so we could hear more about what you, what you knew of the fathers. So that's a great resource. Where else do you want to point listeners and, and viewers towards to, to find out more of your stuff and to try and keep track of the, the, the many books you are, you are constantly coming out with? Where can they go?
1: Well my my website is fathersofthechurch.com. Uh you know you can also find you know find a list of my books at wikipedia um, the article uh, under my name. Uh, uh, my my podcast you can find at catholicculture.org and um, I don't know you can google around after that find me find me wherever. But the books the books you can find at my website and at um at at wikipedia and the the podcast is, is at catholicculture.org.
0: That's fantastic. Mike, I want to say thank you for all your hard work for the church. It's just phenomenal. You, you, you are a prolific author and such a resource for all of us, uh, humble lay people who are trying to find our way in the history of, of Catholicism and all these awesome angles you come up with. So thank you. God bless you. God bless this awesome work you do for the church. And, and thank you for being here today.
1: Well, thank you for your hospitality. I've had a great time, Keith. <laughs>
0: Anytime. Well, thank you once again for joining me on The Cordial Catholic. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being here. CordialCatholic at gmail.com for your feedback. I'd love to hear from you guys. i write back to all the emails I can as soon as I can. The inbox is bursting to the seams lately, but I promise I'll write back to you as soon as I can. TheCordialCatholic.com is my website for the show notes for this show, for blog articles and links to all kinds of things we're doing at The Cordial Catholic. The Cordial Catholic on Facebook, at Cordial Catholic on Twitter and youtube.com slash The Cordial Catholic to watch this show and upcoming shows as well. All kinds of cool videos I'm posting on there as well, so please do check that out. youtube.com slash The Cordial Catholic. Please subscribe to the show where you can find it. Please link it. Like, link it. <laughs> please like it. Please follow it. Please leave a rating and a review if you can. Those ratings and reviews, guys, I say it every single week, but it's true. They really help to push this podcast out to new people. So please do, if you can, leave a rating and a review. And tell a friend. Word of mouth is a fantastic way to spread this show and to grow the mission of evangelization, which underpins this whole thing. Patreon.com slash CordialCatholic to support the show financially, or PayPal.me slash CordialCatholic. All that support goes right back into the show that makes things possible like YouTube. Expanding the reach of this show is only possible through you guys, so thank you. Please pray for me. know that I'm praying for you, and guys, I will talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening. Honestly, guys, and God bless.